I will never forget the day I one time went into a Burger King to study. I used to do that a lot when I didn't have an office and I'd like to go out and eat and study. And uh, So I went, I went to Burger King for lunch and I was finished eating and I was sitting there studying and uh, this family walked in and the mood just changed the second they walked in and saw me. You know, sometimes you can't really explain why or what happened, but you just feel, you just feel something's off here. And they were like staring at me the whole time. And I kept making eye contact with them. The whole time they were ordering, they kept looking at me. They sat down, they kept looking at me. They were pointing at me and they were talking about me. And it was very uncomfortable and very strange. And I didn't know like, am I making this up in my head? Am I, do I need to confront them? And uh, finally they came over and they, they asked me, uh, it was a whole family of them. And the mom asked me, would you please be willing to FaceTime our son who doesn't live here, um, but he is a big fan. And I thought, uh, sure, but I'm starting to get the impression that I'm not the guy you think I am. And apparently back in the day, and I'll admit I did kind of used to have a little bit of a hipster haircut at the time and a big beard, so apparently back in the day, you're not going to believe this, this is a true story, I used to pair a passing resemblance to some famous WWE wrestler. Now, I know you're shocked, but I promise you that actually is a true story. And uh, even after I broke the news to them, they wanted me to continue with the FaceTime and prank their son. It was, it was a very awkward situation. But it was the first time in my life that I received kind of a VIP status. It was the first time in my life where I was in a room and the people in that room thought I was way more important than I actually was. And so they gave me a, a VIP treatment. It was my small little taste of what it feels like to be famous. This was a royal treatment. This was sort of them rolling out the red carpet for me, right? I, I, I received the treatment of royalty even though I really didn't deserve it. And I, I won't ask you to share your stories, although I was, I was tempted to do that. I, I would like to hear them someday, but I thought, I'm not sure if the church is ready for me to throw them under the bus like that right now. But I, I, I encourage you, do you have any stories in your own life of, you know, maybe the airport messed up your ticket and now you get to sit first class and you receive first class treatment even though that's not the ticket you paid for? Or maybe you have stories of when you received a VIP treatment you received a royal treatment. Well, that if you have, then the new character introduced in our story, the very important character we are being introduced to today, Saul, is going to have his royal treatment. We saw last week that God has decided to give Israel their king. And God has already made his decision on who it is to be the first king of Israel, but this poor lad doesn't know that God has made that decision of him yet. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 9? We will read of Saul's royal treatment. First Samuel chapter 9. We are not going to break this apart as sometimes we do. We are going to read this entire story together and then focus on the story's key element. First Samuel chapter 9, beginning at the very beginning. If you would follow along, for these are the very words of God. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekoroth, son of Ephiah, 
a Benjamite, a man of wealth. He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way that we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And they went up the hill to the city. They met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw, the Lord, when Samuel saw, saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what is kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. 
So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. So Saul receives his royal treatment. Saul receives his royal treatment. The key elements here in this long story that we just read through, the elements that I want us to focus on are this is the primarily the element of providence. The reason 1 Samuel 9 was written was for us to be reminded of God's providence. In this text we have an election and then we have a providential working towards the end of that election. What do I mean by that? Well, clearly, as we summarize the story, Saul was chosen by God to be the next or the first king of Israel. But Saul doesn't know that. And Saul lives far away from Samuel, the man who is supposed to be the one who actually ordains him. And so what God does is he providentially works in the world to bring about the fulfillment of his election. In other words, God has decreed something and he is now seeing to it through his providential actions that his decree will be made accomplished. Now, it's important before we begin to maybe define our terms, and I do apologize, I'm having some technical difficulties up here. What do we mean then by providence? When my technical difficulties are done, I will give you the technical definition. But let me just give you my basic definition first out of order. When we talk about the providence of God, what we are talking about is how it is that God interacts in the world and most typically in his non-miraculous ways. When God wants something to happen in a world such as ours, how does he make it happen? Can he make it happen? Is he even able to accomplish what he wants to accomplish and our answer as Christians, and the primary way that we answer this in this church, as we'll see is specifically in the Reformed tradition, is we say an emphatic yes, God can make it happen, and he makes it happen through his providential workings. God's providence is how he is able to work in the world and govern all things after his purposes. In other words, everything happens because God is making it happen. You see, it's... it's Throughout Christian history, this has been an, a very important question for Christians to wrestle with. Christians have been wrestling with this question for a very long time. It goes all the way back, if you were to do a study on church history, one of the first times you would see this come up is with a very famous theologian by the name of Augustine. And Augustine got into a long and heated debate with a heretic by the name of Pelagius. And so what ended up happening were camps began to form of the Augustinians and the Pelagians. Now, if you were to study that, someone would tell you that that was a debate between grace and free will. But what Augustine meant by grace is he was addressing this issue of how is it when creatures have freedom, when creatures have will, how is it that God is able to accomplish things like, for example, salvation? How can God save you if he needs you to believe in him? So is he just completely dependent upon you to be saved before he can act? And that was really the heart of the debate. So the heart of the debate was not so much grace versus free will. The heart of the debate was this issue of providence. 
How is God, does God have control over his creatures? You see, every Christian is comfortable believing God has control over the natural world. Almost every Christian is comfortable. There are very few just religious people in general who are uncomfortable with that. And those people are called deists. A deist is someone who believes that God just created the world. He created everything and then sort of hit that domino, let it fall, and now he just backs out. God is not interacting in the world. He's not concerned with the world. He's just sitting back and watching the dreidel spin. That's deism. It's a God who is distant, who does not work in the world. Now, deism is not super popular, and it's obviously never been a Christian belief. So among people, Christians and even non-Christian groups, who believe that God is not deistic, he's not a deist, everyone is comfortable attributing God's control, sovereignty, providence over the natural world. Right? God controls the rain. God controls the weather. God controls the clouds and the winds, and he can try to use those to accomplish his purposes. And we all agree with that. Now, I would say that even if your view of the providence of God is limited just to the natural world, your theological problems don't go away. Some of the theological problems we're going to discuss in just a minute here do not go away by just giving God freedom over the natural world. Because you want to know what happens in the natural world? Really bad things. Tsunamis kill a lot of people. Tsunamis kill a lot of people. Tornadoes kill people. Viruses kill people. Disease kills people. Animals kill people. Cold weather kills people. Warm weather kills people. The natural world is really, really, really good at killing people and making creatures suffer. So the common desire we have to know God is not in control of human affairs because human affairs don't go very well and I don't want to blame God for that. So God can be in control of nature but we in our own free will we're in control of human affairs. But even when you make God in control of nature you've still got some answers to give. Because nature kills people too. Nature does really really bad things too. And so in this tension between human accountability and human will, Christians have all come to see, well not all, but many Christians have come to see that God is sovereign over all of it. And he is sovereign through his providence. Providence is how he works things in the world. A technical definition I chose to use from the great Belgic Confession says this, that According to the doctrine of God's providence, we believe that this good God, after creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune. Right? That's deism. He did not abandon things to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangement. God is arranging all things. He is providentially working in the world, even in human affairs, to bring about his good purposes. Now, before we dive into some of the tension in this, I want us to see, why have I made such a big deal of providence? Right, we've left the text, haven't we? Where do you get this from the text? Well, the text, I would argue, is very, very clear about this in two ways, a subtle way and an explicit way. Here's how I want us to look at, first, the subtle way. I want us to notice all of the alleged coincidences of this text. Now, in my notes, I put coincidences in air quotes. If you believe in a providential God, there really is no such thing as a coincidence. 
Because God is in control of all things, not just the big things, not just some things, not the weather. He is in control of all things, so there truly are no coincidences, and that's the point I'm making. From a human perspective, there's just too many coincidences happening in this narrative to believe that it's just human beings randomly doing things. God is clearly working in here. Why do I say that? Well, look at verse 3. 1 Samuel 9, verse 3. After being introduced to Saul and his very wealthy father, this very wealthy father, Kish, has some donkeys. In verse 3, now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So first coincidence, it just so happens that right around the time that Israel needs a new king and God has selected him, that Kish's donkeys get lost. The text doesn't tell us if this is an often occurrence. Maybe this is the first time they've ever gotten lost. Maybe they get lost every day. We don't know. But it just so happens that on just the right day, the donkeys get lost. Now, that in of itself maybe is not that impressive, but let's press on. So verse 3, the donkeys get lost. So Kish said to who? Saul. Kish has slaves. One of the slaves goes with him. He could have just sent slaves. He just so happened, he probably has other children. That was very common for a wealthy man of this day. A very wealthy man usually had many, many wives so that he could bear many sons. He probably has a lot of kids. He picked Saul. The, God, the, the guy that God just so happened to make the next king of Israel is selected to go chase after the donkeys that just so happened to leave right when God wants to anoint a king. But we continue, look at verse 4. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim. He passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin. He did not find them. So notice this next coincidence. These donkeys aren't just lost. They're lost. Like they're gone. They just so happen not just to get lost, but to get so lost that it's going to take Saul across the entire region looking for them. Right? Notice all of God's plans fall apart. If, he, if, 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 if Cush says to his son, Saul, go find him, and he just takes, goes in the next town and says, oh, there they are. Bring him home. Plans wrecked. Now, how did this happen? Was God guiding the donkeys? Was he blinding their eyes from seeing them? We don't know. But it just so happens that on the exact right day, the donkeys get lost. They get lost. And that of all the people to choose, Saul is chosen. And the donkeys are so lost that it takes Saul all the way throughout the region. But we're not done yet. Look at verse 5. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. So Saul finally calls it quits. He could have called it quits earlier. They've been walking a long time right now. And I remind you, they, don't, they didn't have Uber. They didn't have Dr. Souls. What is it, what's his name? Dr. The, the guy who invented the super comfortable shoes. They're in leather sandals in the Middle East, walking for miles and miles and miles. I tell you right now, uh, the text made it very clear. Saul was a very young, handsome, strapping young lad. If it was me, I'm quitting before Benjamin. They're gone. All right, time to go home. But Saul is able to persevere to Zuf and no further and no earlier. And guess just who happens to be in Zuth? Samuel. Doesn't live there. That's not where he resides. But 
It just so happens that the, right when they get to Zuf, there's a sacrifice. Remember we learned that Samuel had a, had, was go, would go around and do different sacrifices in different regions? So the timing just coincidentally, it just so happens to line up. Samuel happens to be in the very town where Saul finally says, I'm done. At the exact same time, in the same place. And not only that, but it's not even Saul who has the idea to see the seer. It's the servant who's with him. So the servant just so happens to somehow be more aware than Saul of the political religious system of Israel. Saul apparently has no idea the seer's in this town, but the servant does. So the servant just randomly comes to mind, hey, by the way, even though I'm the slave and you're the, I actually know something you don't. There's a seer here. So they decide, well, let's ask the seer, but what's the problem? They don't have any money. And it was a custom day. If you were going to ask the prophet for a service, he just is worthy of his wages. And Saul says, you know, we, we barely have enough back to make it home. We have nothing to give him. But they do. And the text gives us no explanation. Somehow the slave just so happens just so happens to have the exact amount of coinage that was required to give to a seer. The slave is the one with the money. And remember, they just went looking for the donkeys. They had no idea it was going to take them this far. It's not like he had some ulterior, I'm going to try to manipulate Saul and bring him to Samuel. I really want to see Samuel. He just so happened to have the money. They go and they see Samuel. They find some women. They say, oh, he literally, he's just got here. He's about to perform the service. Go up there. They show up there and Saul's already on his way down the hill. This is something that literally cannot be planned by human affairs. There are just too many coincidences in this text for us to not see what's actually happening. And that is that God is arranging this. God is divinely, providentially bringing this encounter to happen. But we have something more than just implicit coincidences. We actually have the exact testimony of God. This is kind of our key verse. If you will, look, it with me. look with me at verses 15 and 16. After the whole story of all the coincidences is told, God takes credit for it. Look at what he says in verses 15 and 16. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I've seen my people because of their cry has come to me. If all you had was verse 16, what is the proper answer? Who sent Saul to Samuel? God. God takes the Active voice here. Notice, God does not take a passive role in this at all. God does not say, you know what, Samuel, I, uh, I looked into my crystal ball and I saw into the future. And guess what? Oh, this is perfect. It turns out that Saul is going to be in the same region that you are tomorrow. Oh, this, this works wonderfully for me. God did not foresee this. He sent this. God does not take the passive. He does not merely predict it. God didn't look at the situation and go, hold up, hold up, hold up. You know what? Yeah, if my math is correct, the donkeys are gone. They're way over there. They don't know that. Uh, oh my, yeah, the numbers are, I think, I, 
I can't, I, I don't know for sure, but I, if, if my math is correct, I think they're going to be in the same region on the exact same time, right at the time of the sacrifice. Wow, I better, I better go tell Samuel. This is not a prediction. This is not foreseeing. This is God actively. I will send him to you. When he gets there, you give me credit. I did this. And that's why we have all of these inexplicable coincidences. Because God is at work. So what do we see in this text? God doesn't just work human, or forgive me, the, the natural world according to his events, to his plans, but even human decisions are working in according with the plans of God. John Calvin said it this way, By God's providence, not heaven and earth and inanimate creatures only, but also the counsels and wills of men are so governed as to move exactly in the course which he has destined. Now, why do I say that? Because God has taken active credit. I sent him. But we already know the story. Samuel told the story very well. If you were a first, well, not even first century, this is way before the first century. If you were a Jew in this day, and you heard somebody say something like, well, um, God sent me, or God sent him, you would probably think this person must have had a miraculous encounter with God. You know, uh, Moses is described as being sent to Egypt. How did God send Moses to Egypt? It wasn't this mysterious providence. He met him miraculously in a burning bush and he said, go there. God met with Moses and said, here's what you need to do. Go to Egypt. God sent him there. Even later on in the history of Israel, prophets receive visions and God tells them what to do and sends them. So you would think if God is the one who sent Saul, that God had an encounter with Saul. Right? Maybe he met Saul in a burning bush. Maybe he appeared to Saul in a vision. He said, Saul, go to the land of Zuf to meet Samuel. Isn't that what it means for God to send somebody? So even though God sent him, we go back in the narrative, and you would think before we get to 15 and 16, you would think God has nothing to do with this. God is absent from the picture. Why did Saul begin to move? Not because God sent him, because the donkeys were lost. Why did Saul begin to move? Not because God sent him, because his father sent him. Why did Saul decide to go see the seer? Not because God sent him, because the slave recommended it. And in all of that process, Saul is making his own free will decisions. Saul chose to obey his father. He could have been disobedient. He said, oh, dad, I'm busy. And who knows where they are? No, dad, send the slaves. He made a free will choice to obey his father. He made a free will choice to not quit before they get suf. He made a free will choice to obey the voice of his servant. So here we have not God, but we have his father and the donkeys and the servants and his own free will. That's what brought him here. Yet God takes credit. I sent him. That's called providence. And it's very important for us to understand an additional term. We talked about it just briefly at Sunday school today. To truly understand this issue of providence, we need to understand a very, very important term called compatibilism. This is a crucially important doctrine in the Christian world. The doctrine of compatibilism. And what compatibilism is, is it's the middle ground, and we would argue it's the true in biblical ground, between the two extremes of the debate. The debate that I brought up at the beginning, 
Does God predestine everything? Or do men make their own free choices, uncoerced, uncompelled free choices, and they're accountable for their choices? What is it? You know what the biblical answer is? Yes. Yes. Do men make free, uncoerced, personal decisions that they are held accountable for? Absolutely. It happened all throughout 1 Samuel 9. There's no indication that Saul was picked up like a puppet, like, God is taking me somewhere. I don't want to do this, but he's forcing me. These were his decisions. These were just human beings just interacting with their environment. There wasn't a letters in the sky or a voice in their head. They're just going with the flow, making free, uncoerced decisions. Yet, God takes credit for these decisions. The answer is yes. Now, I'm going to take us to another text that I think shows us this in a much more important way, in a much more clear way, but let me just have a brief recess. There is no doubt that when we start talking about providence and compatibilism, we are getting into theological, philosophical territory that is far deeper than we have time and energy for here today. Now, that is not to say that you are incapable of going those depths. That is not to say that you shouldn't go to these depths. I would encourage all of us to begin this lifelong struggle of opening up God's word, reading additional theologians, listening to teachers, and trying our best to understand this very complex relationship. So this is a very, very deep dive that we are not going to even come close to diving into today. But I would suggest, though, that before you dive deep, you, ha you have to start somewhere. So even if some of the stuff I'm saying today, you're just thinking, there's a lot of additional dots that I didn't see him connect. Well, yeah, of course, we're not going to connect those dots in every single sermon and do so here today. But before you dive deep, you have to hit the shallow part first. Right? So I, I, all I want us to do today, my only hope for us today, is just to see the basics of this very deep philosophical dive. And then it's just kind of a lifelong process connecting all the pieces later. But I, I want to show you a text. I think it's crystal clear in 1 Samuel 9. Like, we have to ask the question, why did Samuel write this? Doesn't it seem, to be honest, kind of irrelevant? That was a long passage we just read, was it not? We spent a long time reading. And guess what's happened? Really not a lot. Saul, or forgive me, God, the Lord chose Saul, but he hasn't even been anointed king yet. Guess what? Samuel hasn't even told him he's to be anointed king yet. Where have we gotten? God has a mysterious choice for king who hasn't been anointed as king. The king has not been established. The king doesn't even know he's the king. We haven't really made that much groundwork. This all could have been skipped with one sentence. We could have skipped chapter 9 and just began with chapter 10. Israel demanded a king and there was a man named Saul who was chasing some donkeys and found Samuel. End of story. Why this long narrative? You see, it's very, very important that Samuel show us how active God is in the lives of his people. That God brought about this not technically miraculous, but providential circumstance to get exactly what he wanted. And he didn't have to rain fire and brimstone down from heaven to do it. This issue of providence, compatibilism, it's very, very important. I really do believe it is the reason 1 Samuel 9 was recorded. 
We need to see how God works. But to really show the, the, the beauty of this doctrine of compatibilism, I want us to look at something far more important than Saul running into Samuel. Keep your markers here, but turn to the book of Acts chapter 4. If you're struggling to believe me right now, if you're struggling to understand this right now, while you turn there, I want you to ask, answer this question in your head. Let's talk about something much more important. Let's talk about the cross of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus. Did God plan that? Just think in your head. It's difficult to say, no, God didn't plan that. After all, it becomes literally the climax of the entire scriptures. This position that would say the cross is just kind of this uh, accidental thing. Or like plan, you know, God wanted plan A, uh, that didn't work out. So we tried plan B, uh, that didn't work out. Plan C, finally we get to plan like X, Y, Z. Okay, fine, we'll just do the cross. It's hard to read the scriptures that way. This is the heart and soul of all the scriptures. This is how God is most glorified in the giving death, resurrection of his son. This is God's plan. This is what God, this is the whole point of creation was to do this right here. But what's the other problem with the crucifixion? There's a lot of free will events that led up to that. A lot of things had to go right to make that work. Let's hear how the early church describes it. Acts chapter 4, look at verse 27 and 28. The early church is praying to God corporately right now. And after acknowledging him as the sovereign God who is Lord of all creation, they say this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Stop there. All of these people were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. You realize that? There is no one person or one people to blame for Jesus' death. You can't just blame the Jews. You can't just blame the Romans. You can't just blame Pilate. You can't just blame Herod. They all had a role to play. Remember, Pilate didn't want to do it. Do you remember that? Pilate was very, very resistant to it. But he crumbled under peer pressure. But Pilate, multiple times, I see no guilt in this man. Why don't you just deal with him? This is none of our concern. Pilate didn't want to do it. If Pilate doesn't do it, it doesn't happen. It doesn't matter what the Jews say. It doesn't matter what Herod said. Pilate could have ended, he could have prevented it all by himself. So we need Pilate's free will to make the crucifixion happen. Man, God's really hoping Pilate comes through. But it's not just Pilate that has to come through. The Jews have to come through too. Because remember, Pilate gave them a choice, Jesus or Barabbas. What happens if the Jews say, give us Jesus, kill Barabbas? You're going to hell. That's what happens. You're going to hell. We needed the Jews to come through. And they had their own motivations for why they wanted to see Jesus die. We needed Pilate to come through. But he was first sent to Herod. Herod could have ended this whole thing by his authority. Herod could have said, this is silly. This is done. Don't go back to Pilate. Let this man go. Or just imprison him forever. And by the way, in the very, at the very end of it, the Romans, once Pilate and Herod make their decision, the Romans have to follow through. The Roman guards have to say, yeah, even though we think this man's innocent, we're going to kill him anyway. So notice all the people who have gathered together against Jesus. It's a complex situation we have here. All the different motivations, all the different choices and free will. But how does the text describe that in verse 28? What did all of these people do? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. 
What did Pilate do? He made a free will choice that God predestined. What did Herod do? He made a free will choice that God predestined. What did the Jews do? They made free will choices that God predestined. The cross was a culmination of human events, of human decisions, and the Bible says it was predestined. We call this compatibilism. Men make choices. God holds them accountable for those choices. But at the end of time, we see that all of these choices were ultimately part of God's plan. Compatibilist Christians are the only Christians who can consistently affirm Romans 8.28 that all things work together for the good of those who love him. Because we believe God is in fact sovereign over all things. He is not dependent on creatures. He does not have plan A, B, C, D and whatever they do then I'll try to adjust accordingly. God is accomplishing his purposes. Before we conclude I just want to quote the great Princeton theologian Charles Hodge, he says this, the Bible no less clearly teaches that God exercises a controlling power over the free acts of men, as well as over their external circumstances. This is true of all their acts, good and evil. It is asserted in general terms that his dominion extends over their whole inward life, and especially over their good acts. Proverbs says the preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs also says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Ezra tells us, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the houses of the Lord. I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, says the psalm. Incline my heart unto your testimonies. Incline not my heart to any evil thing. A large part of the predictions, promises, and threatenings of the Word of God are founded on the assumption of this absolute control over the free acts of His creatures. Without this, there can be no government of the world and no certainty as to its issue. The Bible is filled with prayers founded on this same assumption. All Christians believe that the hearts of men are in the hand of God, that He works in them both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. What do we learn in 1 Samuel 9? We learn of the great providence of God, that he works in human affairs to bring about his purposes. And I want us to conclude with these three things. Why does this matter? Why should you care about this? If anything, this has just made you more uncomfortable. Why bring this up? Why talk about this? Well, three reasons this matters in conclusion. Number one, this is our reminder that God will in fact accomplish his purpose. God does not make promises that he can't fulfill. We don't see God making promises and then later on those promises falling short and God says, well, I mean, I wanted to do that, but I mean, the, pe the people wouldn't let me. The people wouldn't let me fulfill my promise. I'm sorry, I tried. Do you have hope in God's promises? We still have some. Jesus is going to come again. How do you know that's true? All good things work for those who love God. How do you know that's true? Unless God is able to accomplish what he wants in the world, that's just a claim. You don't know that he can actually make your circumstances good. How does he have the power to do that? That would require working with human beings. And many Christians have barred God from being able to do that. No, God will fulfill his promises. He will accomplish his purposes. Number two, I'm going to argue this. And this might sound very counterintuitive to you, but I really truly believe that this is the doctrine of comfort. Providence, compatibilism, this should be the most comforting thing in the world to us. Why do I say that? Let me explain by way of analogy. 
I want you to take two situations in your head. There's a, a father with a young son, and the young son is very skittish, very afraid, very immature, and they're out on their lake house, and the son wants to go look in the water at the fish, but he doesn't want to get in because he doesn't know how to swim, and he's really, really scared. So they go out on the dock, and they're looking at the fish, and all of a sudden the son looks a little too far. He sees one, he looks a little too far, and he falls in. And he's splashing, and he's kicking, and he's drowning. And he can hear his dad's kind of from the dock say something along the lines of, Oh no, son, I'm so sorry. I, I promise I'll fix this. I'll get you out. Now, there's some comfort there. There's some comfort there. I'm believing, you know, I'm not supposed to be here. Dad didn't want me here. This is a bad situation, but I mean, he is dad. I'm sure he'll figure out a way to fix this. I want you to compare that to another scenario of a father with a young, skittish son who doesn't know how to swim, and his father says, no, you need to know how to swim. So he takes him out on the dock, and he says, son, you're going to learn to swim today. The son says, no, 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 please, Dad, I don't want to. And Dad says, trust me, and he picks him up, and he throws him in. Now, in both scenarios, there's a level of discomfort. In both scenarios, the son is drowning in the water. He's splashing, he's kicking, he's afraid. But I would challenge you, which one is a more comforting scenario if you're the kid? The one with a panicked God who didn't want this to happen but promises he can fix it somehow? Or the God who says, I'm going to put you exactly where I want you. And it might be uncomfortable, you might not like it, but I know what's best for you better than you do. You see, you want to know what the doctrine of providence teaches us? In your most horrible terrible, discouraging days, God is not on the dock of heaven saying, I didn't want this, but I promise I'll find a way to get you out. In your hardest days, you are serving the God who held you by the hand and brought you in there. Saying, I know what's good for you. And I love you. I want you here. I'm using this for your good. Do you trust me? That's the comfort we put our, we, we, we sleep with at night. That God is not going to accidentally allow me to fall into something he didn't want me to fall into, but he is in control of my life. And so even when he does things that I don't like, that are really painful, that I don't understand, I trust that I'm exactly where he wants me to be. And the last thing I'll say is this. This reminds us that God will accomplish his purposes, providence. It reminds us that this is a very comforting thing. And the last thing I want to say is this. This should be a reminder to you of God's great love for you. One commentator put it this way. Yahweh's strange and baffling providence of 1 Samuel 9 is not the exclusive privilege of some kingdom elite. It extends to each of his people no matter how seemingly common. You know, it's so funny to think that Saul, on the day that the donkeys got lost had no idea that the God of heaven had elected him for a royal privilege. He was just going through his life. He was just doing his thing, obeying his dad, chasing donkeys. And next thing he knows, he eventually, we'll see, comes to find out that you weren't just chasing donkeys. While you were out there chasing donkeys, the God in heaven knew you and loved you and had a great plan for you. And he was working in your life to bring you to this plan. And you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of all of our days before we came to know Christ. You know what you were doing? Just whatever. 
He was just living life. Just like Saul. Chasing donkeys. And little did you know that the God of heaven knew you and loved you and providentially brought the gospel into your life without your permission. I don't know how you heard the gospel. Maybe you were born into a Christian home. Whose choice was that? Do you choose to be born in a Christian home? God puts you there. Maybe you heard the gospel because you went to prison and there was an inmate preaching the gospel to other inmates there. You know what that means? While you were off breaking the law, chasing donkeys, God was providentially guiding you to a gospel preacher. I don't know where you were when you first heard the gospel. Maybe you were taking a vacation to Florida. Just hanging out with your friends and found yourself in conversation with a Christian musician. You thought you were just going to Florida. You thought I'm going to prison. You thought I had just born. But it was the God in heaven who says, no, I know something here. I'm working here. I'm going to bring this child of mine to the gospel. You heard the gospel because God providentially brought you to it. Saul did not find Samuel. God brought him to Samuel. You did not coincidentally find yourself in a position to hear the gospel. That may have happened from your perspective. But from the perspective of the God who Ephesians 1 says elected us before the foundations of the earth and as Romans chapter 8 says that those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified. God is the one who graciously and effectively called you. He is the one who orchestrated your life and your circumstances and brought you to where exactly you needed to be and then brought the person who needed to be there to share this message with you that has saved your soul. God did that. And you thought you were just chasing donkeys. God's providence is a reminder of his great love for us. That he is working all things for our good. That he is the one who even in our stupidity, in our ignorance, led us and brought us to his word. It's a reminder that he is the good and gracious author of your life. You see, the the doc analogy... Let's, 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 let's do one more, a third one. You're on the dock and a stranger comes and kicks you in. That's also scary. That's not comforting. But when you come to see the God of Scripture, that He's not a stranger, He's not a seditious prankster, but He's a good, gracious, and loving Father, suddenly say, okay, you can throw me in the water. I trust you. Throw me in the water. I trust you. The the providence of God is a reminder of his constant love for us, that he upholds all things according to the word of his power, that he is using all things in your life for good, he is bringing you where he wants you to go, that he is working efficaciously in your life. So be comforted that he is in control. Be comforted that he will fulfill his plans. Be comforted that he loves you and he's doing all things for your good.